what I'm trying to figure out is if artificial intelligence can create a lot of commoditized content and quick answers and the interfaces that we're using to find those changes, then what what's the emerging value of content? Like, why do people seek out information? What's the value in that? And how do I build the agency processes and our services around that value? Welcome to the Learning to Change podcast, where we explore the power of the modern learner's lens and put the focus on learning. I'm your host, Melissa Emler, and today I talk with Alex Burkett. He's the co-founder of the content marketing agency, Omniscient. This was a special episode because Alex was a student of mine back in the day. And even way back then, I could see his potential as a writer and as a thinker. Alex and his colleagues are in a huge learning phase. Together, we explore how advancements like AI chatbots and generative search are changing how people discover and interact with content online. We discuss whether websites and traffic will still matter as much in the future. I, of course, emphasize the importance of not just access to content, but how content gets used, because how it gets used is truly where the value is created. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this inspiring journey of growth, change, and learning. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Alex Burkett. Welcome to the podcast, Alex Burkett. I am so glad you are joining me on the Learning to Change podcast. It's really exciting because I have been watching your career grow on LinkedIn for a long time, and I'm super impressed by all of the work that you've done, but I'm not surprised by any of it because you were one of my best freshman and sophomore English students that I ever had. (laughs) So now I'm not asking you to divulge any stories, but do you remember being a great English student back in the day? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that you frame it that way. I, I, I'm a little shocked to hear that. I feel like I'm a better student now than I was in high school, but um, I probably showed potential. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely showed potential. And you're writing, you, so as an English teacher, obviously there are very few students that stand out that I can say they were great writers then. And you were a great writer then, but I've always thought that it was because you were a great thinker. And mm-hmm. you were like, you know, a typical freshman and sophomore when I had you in class and you were fun and you had a band and you were, you know, a little wild child a little bit, but you were (laughs) always very thoughtful and you were always a thinker. So when I watched your career growing into what you do now at, and your company is Be Omniscient, right? Mm -hmm. Omniscient Digital. Yep. And so you're a digital content agency, essentially. So as I watched that happen, I was like, oh my God, I could have predicted this trajectory. (laughs) And so are you surprised at your career path? Yes and no. I think in high school, I even, you know, realized that I loved literature and reading. I didn't put two and two together that I could make a career in any way related to writing. Uh, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I think I wanted to do music, right? And I started college as a music major and quickly realized that because I hadn't been playing piano and doing music theory since age four, I was a little bit behind and I was kind of a punk rock guy who liked playing guitar and playing the drums loud. There was some point in college where I started reading authors like Ryan Holiday and Tim Ferriss, who we use the word creator now, 
mm-hmm. but they just had blogs. They were just writing. Uh, this is before podcasts were mainstream. And I kind of fell into that uh, niche a little bit. So that made me start writing a blog. And that was like basically me taking the learnings from school in college, the, the books I was reading, the advertising classes I was taking, uh, the additional reading that I was doing and just writing the lessons that I was learning. And it kind of weaved in and out from there uh, to eventually the point I'm at now, which is running a business that is incredibly writing centric. So yeah, there was some twists and turns. Um, I think the inklings were there though. For sure. You know, having taught you and then watching your career, it it seems like all in perfect alignment. And I am sure that when you're the one experiencing it, you experience those twists and turns. But I, what I love so much about the work and the podcast that you do now, The Long Game, definitely check it out. I'm an avid listener. But what I find so awesome about your entire trajectory is that I have always thought of you as being a learner and Mm -hmm. always extremely curious. And then you take those curiosities and you think about it and you write and it's your writing where you make sense of what you're learning. And so I have really enjoyed sort of learning from your learning. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. And I love that one of my students is really like, I see you as a learner. Do you see yourself as a learner? A hundred percent. Like that's one of the primary identities I have uh, for better or for worse. Cause sometimes it does have cons too. When you, you know, you get too, too far down in the rabbit hole and uh, you're reading and reading and learning. And it's like, I just got to do something, you know? So sometimes I'll find myself a little bit too buried in the world of ideas, but to your point about like the writing and thinking and learning through writing um, one thing that came to mind, and this is back to like the twists and turns of the career the shocking thing for me was that I dove into the world of statistics and data-driven marketing and kind of mathy marketing. And this was at a company called CXL. Basically, they were a conversion rate optimization agency. And I started at the company, uh, they were heavily built on content marketing. So I was writing two articles a week, running experiments and doing you know additional marketing to drive leads for the agency. But at that point, I didn't know any, I knew nothing about A-B testing. I barely knew anything about analytics. And I looked at that, I still look at that as, as sort of getting paid to learn. It was like graduate school for data-driven marketing, but I was getting paid to write the articles. So during the writing process, that was my way of learning all of those topics. And then I eventually kind of went into that field uh, before I launched the agency. So I definitely resonate with that. Yeah, well, and I find that so funny because you also have an amazing balance between creator and analyzer, researcher, that analytics, that data side, you you have a good combination of that. Do you find that to be an anomaly for your skill set and for your work? No, no. So I, I think that it's, it, well, it, it feels like it should be more common uh, because I, so I, in college, I was in the journalism school. Basically, I was an advertising and public relations major, but I had to take uh, multiple foundational journalism courses, which a lot of people would consider more on like the creative lines, more on like the humanities. But journalism to me was very similar to being an analyst. It's it's like crystallizing your questions. What do you want to know? What questions are you asking to get that information? Because that, that to me, that's what analytics is too. It's not just looking at reports and data and numbers. It's saying like, what looks weird about this? Or like, what, you know, where are we trying to go? And what information would I ideally need to get there? And where are the gaps? Now? It's, it's all about the questions. So those two, the, the mindset of those two things feels very similar to me. Yeah. And it's all about the questions. So it just feeds your curiosity. Right. Right. And that's why, that's why it's so fun to do a podcast too. You're just doing questions all day. 
Absolutely. So I love thinking about how you got started, that your creator side sort of taught you about the analytics side and what you needed to do to be successful. But that led you to being, for lack of a better word, an expert in sort of SEO and content optimization, A-B testing, experiments. I know one of the roles that you had at a company recently, you were like, weren't you the experimenter? Like, wasn't that your title? <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> what my title was. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran the experimentation program and the team at uh, at Workato, uh, which is like this enterprise automation platform, kind of like Zapier for, it's like Zapier with SOC 2 compliance. So, I mean, I think about all of those, that, that layer of expertise that you're obviously bringing and utilizing in your agency. And I think about what's happening in the context of technology and the world in relationship to AI. And I think, oh my goodness, you're about to be disrupted and sent <laughs> on the next learning journey. So I'm curious to know sort of what you're thinking about or learning about as it relates to AI or SEO in the work and in the agency work that you do? Yeah, that's that's a, a big question. So the, the thing that I'm learning with AI specifically is that it's a very, it's like a meta skill almost to learn how to parse out the signal from the noise. Because this is such a trendy topic, there's a lot of bad information out there, or maybe not bad information, but just vapid information that doesn't actually apply. There's a lot of hot takes, right? Like there's mm. all kinds of creators now who are jumping on the bandwagon of AI and trying to build newsletters, trying to build personal brands based on it. So it's trying to find who of the creators, who of the influencers is legit, who has skills to back it up and experiences to back it up you're not going to find all signal. So like, if you want to learn anything, you're going to have to parse through that to a certain extent. Uh, with AI, it's clearly something that's going to impact search. Um, it already is with regards to search uh, generative experience in Google and Bard, uh, Bing chat. Like it's, it's changing the way consumers are interfacing with information. So that's where I go down to like the root level and think not just how do we create more content with AI. I feel like that that sort of solutionism that's, that's applying like a bandage and not really thinking about the problem we're trying to solve with that. What I'm trying to figure out is if artificial intelligence can create a lot of commoditized content and quick answers and the interfaces that we're using to find those changes, then what is the, what, what's the emerging value of content? Like what, what, why do people seek out information? What's the value in that? And how do I build the agency processes and our services around that value, right? Because if there's this layer of information that's going to get picked off and summarized and rehashed in a way that, you know, you can get a one second answer. Um, that's probably not going to be the value add that our agency is is best suited to serve, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And what's coming up for me when you talk about that is in my work with lots of education departments, state education departments, large school districts, we are often talking about content and knowledge, and we're framing it in regards to access. And we always talk about access plus use equals benefit. So in the case of your um, agency and creating content, creating content initially was about providing access to all of this knowledge that all of these people had. But now that you have... Um, not a content that can be sort of knocked off and summarized and, you know, just shrunk down into its least common denominator. You have 
a problem with use. So how are people wanting to use the content that's being created? And it's the usage of the content that creates the benefit. Mm. And so I think that's an interesting way to really think about the work of a content agency is when you're thinking about content, how are you, how are you intending for people to use the content you're putting out? And have you thought about that much? That's that's an interesting question. Um, how are they using the content? Well, so we very specifically in our context, we work with B2B companies. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be writing content for other marketing or, or sales leaders or IT leaders who are hoping to buy software or services. So there's a certain level of complexity in that content. You know, if I was in a consumer space, I feel like I would have a much different answer here. Uh, but there's a certain utility it's, it's yeah. almost like there's a piece of the content itself. It's like, who wrote it? And like, what's the additional information that I'm getting from this piece of content that I can't get on G2 or Captera or software review sites or, you yeah. know, your average industry blogger? Like, what, what is novel about this? There's, there's a certain novelty seeking um, with regards to the information or expertise, right? Like, that's, that's a big use case for the content that we're serving and we're writing is like, what's the expertise that this person who's writing it has or we have for helping uh, the, the, you know, content production engine? And how do we showcase that expertise in a useful way? That's, that's mm-hmm. a big component of what we're doing. Well, and I think that when you're showcasing the expertise, you also highlight the nuance that of what makes this product or that product different than what's what else is on the market. And I believe that it's the nuances that create the light bulb moments or the aha moments that move people forward in their usage of whatever is being marketed. Mm-hmm. So that part is interesting. And I think that like, SEO, you can still benefit from SEO with that type of content even now, right? I think even more so. This is one of those things with the noise versus signal thing. There's so many changes and there's so much volatility in search engines right now. But there's a couple new features that I find interesting in that way. Um, So history, there's just with these quick answers with generative search, um, that's already been a little bit of a trend with feature snippets and like Mm -hmm. the the feature snippet boxes. Like when you search um, what is account-based marketing, it was already summarizing answers from the existing content. And you wouldn't content. even have to go to the page. So there'd right, be no right. benefit for the producer of that content, really. A little, I mean, it's it's almost like a billboard. Like there, there is like the domain, there's the URL. So you might, you might see that. But yeah, it's it, the value is chipping away already. So this mm-hmm. is just a furthering of that trend. But there's other factors of search that are changing. Um, there is... Oh, what is it called? I can't remember the name now. But there's basically a feature where you can see all the social feeds and Reddit, Quora, like different perspectives, I believe it's called. So there is this emerging trend of like who's writing the content and what different multimedia uh, takes we can get on the subject. So there's definitely still value in SEO. And there's like, I, I find it exciting because this is where learning comes in. It's like, I'm trying to figure out where those changes are going, where it's where the dust is going to settle and how we like get in front of those trends and like figure out search in the future. So if you're a betting man, what's search <laughs> in the future? Like, what are you, what are you aiming for? Yeah. So at this current standpoint, I think that Google makes a lot of money in ad revenue. So I don't believe they're going to do anything drastic that ships that away. Simultaneously, they have to compete in the world of AI and uh, quick answers and generative answers. So there's going to be a certain proportion of content that isn't going to be as valuable for businesses to create. I think historically, that's been true. It was a lot of top of funnel content that wasn't very high intent for buyers. And I think that's largely maybe not going away. Maybe you still want to write that content to have a comprehensive library. 
But the value is shifting for me um, to provide specificity, to showcase thought leadership and expertise, even in content that is specifically written for search, to interweave that into the content. And um, there's a term, it's not a new term, but um, it's increasingly relevant uh, called information gain. So it's essentially, if you think of content in, in two pieces, there's like table stakes. This is the information that needs to appear in this document in order for an algorithm to deem it as relevant for the search query. And then there's additional information gain that sits on top of that, which is a novel way of explaining it, a new perspective, or some unique piece of expertise that's in the content that differentiates it from the other nine results on the top uh, search engine page. I think that's where I want to focus is like, how do we provide information gain? Because then even if, if, if SEO dies, it's still valuable that you're creating and mining for new insights that only you can provide. To me, it's like, it's, it's, it's hard to fake that level of expertise. So whatever the distribution engine of content is in the future, that's still going to be valuable to showcase those insights. That happens to be where Modern Learners, um, which is my company, it's the insights that actually made us a valuable website. My original uh, business partners were prolific writers and speakers, and they blogged, theoretically blogged, thought leadership kind of blogs. Like if I read them now, I think we said the same thing many times, many ways, but they were prolific and they resonated with people because they were essentially, it was a new take on an old theme. And those were the pieces that gave our website more authority, um, but they never knew a thing about SEO. Um, but I think it was that information gain or that insight, the different take on an old subject that actually had the biggest impact on our growth from a traffic perspective. Um, do you think traffic is still going to matter like, how is traffic going to be impacted by AI? Because I think that's what's interesting to me is like, are people still going to go to your website? Um, that's a hard question. Um, I think traffic as a generality still matters. So like the website, like the, the question there is, is the website still going to be relevant? Probably. Um, I've heard takes that it's not going to be as relevant or, you know, websites are dead. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true in my experience. Um, I still think you probably want an owned asset. Um, the website is a good uh, congregation space for all of the distribution work you're doing on social and search, mm -hmm. um, depending on what happens with those channels. Like I still you, I think you want that landing page. And then also the email list is a corollary to that. So some yeah. kind of owned distribution channel um, that you can capture information and send timely and relevant content. Uh, I don't think the website's going to go away, but it's probably diminishing in prominence. Um, I've noticed that even in B2B. Uh, we wrote an article a while back called it was about blogging is losing power, uh, enter decentralized content. And I think the take was a little bit extreme. Uh, I've sort of walked back a little bit after seeing how much SEO opportunity there still is uh, in blogging. But in a lot of the brands that we're working with, uh, we're seeing uh, this new play where essentially you've got ideas, you've got messaging, you've got all of the same topics that you would have previously written about in search. And you're, you're incentivizing your leadership and your employees to write about that in their own way and build thought leadership up on the platform, like the social platforms themselves. So I'm seeing a lot more thought leadership and personal brand platforms being built on LinkedIn, previously on Twitter and or X now, but I feel like that's who knows where where that stands at this point or oh, threads. It's but, a grieving day that's going to <laughs> die, and it's going to like 
I am grieving the loss of what Twitter once was. That's been a huge change. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that was a big platform for me early on uh, in my career back when I was at CXL. I, I remember the distribution was huge there. But that's that's yeah. the other point that I wanted to make with the the website question and traffic is even though despite like like in this moment, people are getting a lot of traction on LinkedIn. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are saying like this is the new modern way. Every social platform has gone through this life cycle where in the early days, it's sort of unoptimized. It's the Wild West, think threads right now. And then a couple hackers or creators figure out how to game the algorithm. The platform looks into that behavior and starts to incentivize it because they realize that creators are going to spend more time there, attract more users for the platform. The distribution, organic distribution is incredible. And then slowly over time, they pull back and make you pay for that access. And I think we're seeing that with LinkedIn. So that's where I'm like, all right, from a first principle standpoint, this has happened multiple times. It's probably still relevant to have a little bit of real estate that you own on the on the internet. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that it's it's relevant, but I'm super curious to know how as you know, as AI develops, how are brands going to show up in the responses from the chat? They're going brands are going to have a way to sort of appear in the responses that are included right. at, at some point. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that shape shifts um, and where they pull that from. Yeah. I don't know necessarily how uh, all of this is going to work. Like there's there's a lot of algorithm understanding mm-hmm. to, to do on my part still. But if we look at just um, Google's uh, generative search experiments, they have changed it a lot, obviously. But I've seen recent updates where, you know, they're adding links that are clickable links. Uh, This is where we found and summarized the content. Uh, Jasper, uh, previous client of ours, they've got Jasper Chat, which uh, includes Google search results. So if you ask a question, um, how do I learn jujitsu? How do I go from white belt to blue belt? It's going to take information from the top page, maybe uh, summarize that and then give you the three sources uh, with hyperlinks. So you can you can Mm -hmm. go click and like read more. I could see something like that. I feel like there's going to be a lot of controversy and debate on how these citations take place and how the credit is given. But mm-hmm. I think the dust hasn't settled on that yet. And I also think there's a proprietary chatbot world coming too. So, right, like and maybe your website has a chat powered. I mean, lots of websites have chat now, but it's just not the same as a large language model powered chat. But I do think there'll be some sort of walled garden for lots of different chat capabilities within, you know, your own work. Do you, um, I want to ask you a question. Do you think, because like that, that excites me more than most things in the world of LLMs Mm -hmm. and, and AI chat. The idea that I could build transcripts of all the podcasts that I've done couple hundred episodes and have a search function where you could essentially ask like the omniscient robot, like we can do it. What do marketing leaders think about blah, blah, blah. And I'm curious about from your perspective, because that seems like it would be revolutionary for students and learning. Well, let me tell you. So it's actually there. It's happening now. So I am the universal design for learning statewide systems coach in Wisconsin. And so for the last five years, we've been creating a ton of content around implementation of UDL in schools and systems, districts at the state level. And so we've been creating content for five years through a grant that we that was funded. And we've created video content, we have podcast content, we have blog content, uh, we are a content engine, essentially. And uh, we have all of that stored in a 
a tool called Searchy. We originally were in Searchy because it made it transcribed all of our videos and podcasts, and then it made all of them searchable based on the transcript in the overlay of the video. So uh, we did that from an accessibility per, for for an accessibility reason, um, and then we would embed them into you know our learning management system. But now Searchy has a a chatbot tool that the guardrails on the response that the chat gives is all of our content in specific channels that we mark. So we do have a UDL chatbot that is responds to questions about UDL from our content and it provides the references and they're all from our content. ChatGPT is still laying underneath of it so that the large language model is predictable, but it is pulling um, those predictions from our own content. And it is fascinating. I don't yet know because it hasn't been built in the tool, the extent to which people are using that feature, uh, but we do prominently display it everywhere that we can. And we are constantly anticipating what questions people are asking so that we can intentionally create the answer in a format that then can be pulled from the chatbot that we have. So to answer your question, it is revolutionary. It is extremely exciting because I don't want people learning about UDL and reading something about learning styles that has been debunked 10, 20 years ago now. I want them Mm -hmm. to have as up-to-date evidence-based content as they can. And I want to know the language in which they're getting it in, right? Like we're, we very specifically choose to use the word learner over student. We very specifically talk about learning design versus lesson planning. And there's nuance in all of those pieces. And we're wanting people to pay attention to that. And so when our bot pulls from that, it, it highlights our language the way we would say it. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. See that, that seems incredible to me. Uh, I've got so many ideas on that. Yeah. Cause like there, I could see like the internal use case, right. For omniscient, we have a ton of, uh, standard operating procedures, yes. how to work with clients, how to do like admin stuff. Right. And I guess this is going to your access and use, uh, kind mm-hmm. of, uh, categories there, but like, you know, you build up more and more content and there's still use, but like the access is harder because it's like, where do I find this specific document? So I could see that being incredibly useful. Right, because the scope is so much broader. It's like so much. You've got a million documents. Like I don't even know where to find things in my notion anymore. <laughs> so it's like you scale to a, you know, ten, you, if we 10X our employees, like that's going to be a real problem. So finding and accessing the documents and like the information could be huge. And then I could obviously see it from a content marketing standpoint too. And that's where some of this stuff interests me. Um, not from a general search perspective, but how, how does it get more specific? How do you train it on your own brand voice and your own content to give answers that I would give about A-B testing, for instance, right? right? Like, I think that's a really interesting use case. And, and that's all, that's where it is. It's the use case. So having access to chat GPT or any large language model isn't necessarily the change. The change is how people are now going to use content. And mm-hmm. um, that's what we're needing to learn about as much as we can. Um, and so earlier we talked about understanding. So whenever there's a change, it usually means that there are competing commitments. And so if the change isn't happening, it's usually because there's a competing commitment that is preventing full-scale change. What do you see being the competing commitments for either the, the people in your agency or the people you're serving through the agency um, that are 
requiring you to sort of teach people sort of the new perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So I'm going to give you two. Um, like I said before, I think about this a lot, like this whole dichotomy of leadership, dichotomous uh, categories thing. So with AI, we could just use AI as sort of the example, but this is true of any technological shift or trend. There's sort of, um, what was the phrase? Competing? Competing commitments. Competing commitments. So it's like, how much do you rely on the underlying foundations and first principles that have provided success? And maybe historically, like they've been indicators of success for a long time. There's certain aspects of search, of content, of marketing that have been true for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And we don't know how much those are going to shift, but they've maintained homeostasis so far. And then there's the innovation. So like, how do you stay on top of the trends? And with AI, that's been a really hard thing for me specifically to solve because I tend to flock towards interesting, shiny objects, especially around data and machine learning. So on some weeks, I'm like, we got to we got to go all in. (laughs) And then on other weeks, I'm talking to these enterprise companies who haven't figured out how to build links or do internal linking or like very basic SEO things. So then my mind goes, let's just do boring SEO. Like we're we're already driving results. So like there's this constant uh, dichotomy between those two things. And the answer specifically for new trends and innovation for me is to uh, do minimum viable experiments and to house those in a sort of test kitchen environment. Because we've established a very good position uh, and we've driven results for the clients that we serve. And I don't want to totally destroy that based on maybe like, it's like a big bet, right? Um, And some agencies go straight in and it might pay off big for them, but it might totally fail. And I don't want to risk the business based on, on those assumptions. So what we'll do, and this is typically my function, is to try it out on my personal website, to try it out on the omniscient blog, or to try it out on a uh, experimentation focused client, somebody who's willing to take the experiment with us. And then we see, all right, what are the results? What are the constraints? What is this good for? Like, how can we actually use AI in this case? And can we incorporate it into our process in a way that's not going to break the system? So that's my my model for that. And then a more general thing outside of any trends, there's always a dichotomy between process and systems and autonomy. And that's a real difficult one, especially for me. I'm a very autonomous person. Um, and I think our agency has been built on the idea of custom strategy, especially on the strategy side. Um, there's the editorial that relies a little bit more on process. But that's still one where it's like, all right, um, where do you enable autonomous decision making? And where do you say, hey, this is like the standardization. This is the way things are done. And it's done this way because we have quality standards. So that's really, you know, you map out your existing workflows, your processes, you figure out areas um, that are constraints or bottlenecks in the system, and you try to work on those. It's an emerging um, iterative process. And we're constantly trying to find ways where we can like add automations to our process or innovate in this specific portion. And there's some portions where it's like, hey, look, here you have a goal, figure out how to do it. Like this is fully autonomous, um, but there's always sort of a competition between those two ends of the spectrum as well. So I often coach people through the immunity to change process, which is where we identify what we're really committed to and we identify sort of the technical pieces, what are we doing or not doing? And then we look at why we're doing or not doing. And Essentially, those the why we're not is what results in competing commitments. You know, we mm. want to be innovative, but we know those first principles are really tried and true. And so, in the coaching process, I often ask them to figure out what their assumptions are 
and then test those assumptions. And so hmm. you're doing that same thing in your test bed where you're running an experiment without throwing everything out. And the experiment then leads you to new assumptions and new commitments. And it allows you to be more free with the choices you make in going forward because you have that test data to sort of challenge your assumptions. And that's where the real change happens. And I think if we, you know, the hot takes that you read on LinkedIn about AI or SEO, they're, they're going to be way on the other end. Those hot takes are not really going to be in a testing your assumptions kind of thing. They're going to be a throw your baby out with the bathwater kind of piece because they believe that that gets them the attention that they need in an attention economy. I think mm -hmm. it's changing. I think attention will be less important um, as we sort of wade into, you know, what what's changing in SEO and traffic and in content just in general. While you're in content marketing, I'm in just content from a learning perspective. And it's the same. It always comes down to access plus use equals benefit. If there mm. is no use, there is no benefit. And so while we're creating the content, we always have to be conscious of how people will use it, where they will use it from a distribution, where they will even get it. That distribution is an access thing. Usage is something completely different. We've been solving for access for a long time. We're moving into solving for use. And that's interesting and exciting work. So I wish you the best of luck on it. <laughs> thank you. It's, it's fun. Big problems are fun to solve. <laughs> they are. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where would you love for people to connect with you in the interwebs? The Long Game Podcast, like you mentioned before, that's a good place to learn about what we're thinking about. We do interviews with marketing and growth leaders, but also just kitchen side episodes with the founding team of Omniscient, uh, where we're talking about AI and all this cool stuff. You can also check out our website, beomniscient.com. And then I write at alexburka.com if you want to check out my writing too. I think everyone should check out your writing and follow along with the work that you do. The Kitchen Side podcasts are fantastic because you get an inside glimpse of all the things that the team is thinking about. And it's super, super fun. So thanks so much for being here on the Learning to Change podcast. Have a great day. And as I always say, don't get in trouble. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today on the Learning to Change podcast. I hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. As we continue to explore the power of learning and its impact on change, remember that it's not about pushing yourself or others to change, but about embracing the process of learning. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're ready to take your learning journey to the next level or bring about a culture of learning in your organization, join us in our free Modern Learners community. We are here to help you navigate the challenges and celebrate the successes that come with embracing learning and change. Simply go to modernlearners.community and join us today. You'll find all the resources from today's show in there. Until next time, Stay curious and remember, I'm not asking you to change, I'm asking you to learn.
Learning to Change is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blaser. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Learning to Change is recorded on the stolen land of the Sauk and Fox tribes, the Miami Nation, the Osati, Shakawi, Sioux, Ho-Chunk, and Kickapoo peoples. 